15. We began last week a series in Paul's letter to Titus. We come to the second message in this series in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 this morning. It's so easy to take for granted the privilege that we have week by week to come before the very words of God. Uh, May that reality humble us and excite us for what God might be pleased to do through His Word. Please follow along as I read Titus 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Twenty-five years ago, in April 1995, Dr. R. Albert Moeller, Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, took his seat beside Rick White, the chairman of the seminary's board of trustees, for what would be a tense and historic press conference. Dr. Moeller had been elected president of Southern Seminary just two years prior and had been assigned the near impossible task of steering the seminary away from the liberalism that had taken hold of the school in the previous decades and to return the seminary to its conservative theological foundation. And his strategy was essentially this, slowly remove professors who were not in line with the school's doctrinal charter and who were promoting error, and appoint new professors who would be faithful to the seminary's confession and mission. Uh, Whether or not the school would survive the trauma of such a transition, and whether or not it would ultimately be returned to its conservative heritage was never assured. Because it was not just the professors, you see, who had adopted liberal theology, but many of the students on the campus had also imbibed such false teaching as well. Dr. Moeller was facing an uphill climb. In his efforts at accomplishing a conservative resurgence and a return to sound doctrine once again at Southern Seminary, Dr. Moeller encountered fierce opposition. Uh, Students and faculty marched and protested outside of Dr. Moeller's office and on the green of the campus. They held late-night vigils protesting his reforms. 
Members of the faculty deliberately mistreated Dr. Moeller's wife and children. Eventually, the faculty took a vote of no confidence against Dr. Moeller. Things could not have looked more bleak. After controversial firings in 1994-1995, students and faculty turned up the pressure on the president. And Moeller's job appeared to be in jeopardy, and the mission to return Southern Seminary to its conservative roots appeared to be in peril. The Board of Trustees met in April 1995 to evaluate the accusations and criticisms against Dr. Moeller. And as a result of that historic meeting, the Board decided to fully back its embattled president. After the trustee meeting, Dr. Moeller and Rick White, the chairman of the Board, held a press conference. In fact, I believe on the way to the press conference, a couple of students spat on Dr. Moeller. During the press conference, Al Moeller was asked this question. What gives you the resolve to stay in a community where you've received so much resistance for your stands? And in spite of faculty frustration and opposition, do you still feel the commitment that you felt when you first took the position? He responded, absolutely. And that commitment is ever deeper by the day. I believe without question that God has called me to this office, and I am committed so long as I have energy and life to give all that I have in the leadership of this institution in order to see it serve rightly the churches of our denomination, to train, educate, and prepare godly ministers of the church who will faithfully preach and teach the Word of God, who will be eager evangelists of the gospel, who will be shepherds of the flock and careful physicians of the soul. There is no higher calling for any institution than to serve the church of Jesus Christ and to stand upon the faith once for all delivered to the saints. With the assurance of God's calling and the confirmation and resolve of this board of trustees, I am here and I intend to be here. I did not come into this office seeking conflict, and yet in an institution undergoing this character of transition, some conflict has occurred. My commitment is to deal with that conflict as responsibly as biblically and as properly as we possibly can. So Dr. Moeller continued with his charge, continued with his strategy. He continued to remove the liberal professors and began to appoint conservative and godly men. Fast forward to today, Southern Seminary is the largest seminary in the world, graduating hundreds of men and women each year who are sound in theology and robustly committed to the gospel of Christ. We are privileged to have a couple of our men who are enrolled at Southern Seminary. Now, if you can appreciate something of the position Dr. Moeller was in when he was appointed president of Southern Seminary and given the task to remove liberal professors and appoint conservative professors, you might be able to understand something of the position Titus was in as he faced his own challenges in Crete. Of course, Louisville, Kentucky today is not the Crete of the ancient world, and Southern Seminary is not a church, but there are some parallels. Paul has left Titus in Crete, and he has two main tasks. Number one, he's to root out the false teaching that had already begun to infect the churches there in Crete. And number two, he's to appoint faithful elders. And this dual strategy would be what would ultimately establish the church on a firm and healthy foundation. He couldn't just do one or the other. He had to play offense and defense. Today we consider this dual mission of the man Titus and his ministry to the churches in Crete. 
And what I'd actually like to do for the purposes of this sermon is take the block of text in reverse order. So verses 10 through 16 tell us about the false teachers and their false teaching. Verses 5 through 6, or excuse me, 5 through 9, tell us about the qualifications for biblical elders. So I want us to go out of order here, look, looking first at the false teachers as they're described in verses 10 through 16, and what Titus's responsibility was in addressing those false teachers, and then we'll look at the qualifications for biblical elders in verses 5 through 9. So two main headings this morning, we'll look at false teachers, and then we'll look at biblical elders. Look with me first at the false teachers. How does Paul describe the false teachers? Here's a few uh, quick facts for context. Uh, the false teachers were probably internal to the church. Uh, that is, they were, they were within the church. It's possible they were external outside the church, just harassing the church, but it's, it's probable that they were uh, inside the church and had access to the members. Uh, the false teaching had clearly already infected the church. Uh, Paul says that these false teachers were upsetting whole families. So it's not as though this was floating out in space somewhere. This false teaching was in the church. And Titus had to come like a skilled physician to remove the cancer of this false teaching. It appears, at least on the surface, uh, that this heresy overlaps in some places with what Paul describes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4. A lot of parallels between the heresy described there to Timothy in the Ephesian context and the heresy as it's described to Titus in the Cretan context, which would lead some to believe that the heresy was not just kind of some, some local sort of thing, but perhaps a regional thing that had taken root in a number of churches. Uh, the content of this heresy, uh, at least as it's presented in Titus, is very unspecific and hard to define. Uh, I'm just going to give a very simple summary of what we have in these verses. We're not going to trace out uh, in, in kind of contextual material what this heresy might have been. We're just going to stick with the statements of Paul, okay, and try to, to hear how he describes the heresy. So let's look at the text, in, beginning in verse 10, and just enumerate uh, Paul's various indictments to the false teachers. Uh, first of all, he says, there are many who are insubordinate. I don't know if he means insubordinate to Paul, insubordinate to Titus, insubordinate to the Word of God. I think the basic idea is that they're not subordinate to anybody. Uh, they are a law unto themselves. They will answer only to themselves. He says they're empty talkers and deceivers. Uh, empty talkers meaning uh, the, the content of their teaching is sort of devoid of any real substance. It's futile. It's like vapor. It's empty. Uh, they're deceivers, uh, meaning that they probably intentionally were trying to manipulate people with their teaching. Uh, he says these false teachers were especially from among the circumcision party. That is, they were probably among those of Jewish origin uh, who were seeking to uh, uh, supply circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law as prerequisites for admission into the community of faith. In order to be righteous before God, had to be circumcised, had to adhere to the Mosaic law. He says they are upsetting whole families, verse 11, by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're upsetting whole families, and perhaps doing so in such a way where they're profiting off of these families. They're, they're getting shameful gain in the process. Verse 12, this is where Paul quotes one of their prophets. It says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And I think the idea is that he's applying this statement from one of the Cretan prophets to these false teachers. These false teachers, especially if they were of the circumcision party, they probably thought that they were distinct from the world. 
Uh, They weren't unclean like so many people out there in the world, but Paul says you're just like them. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and always liars. Verse 14, he describes them as devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Don't think when you hear Jewish myths, he's talking about the Old Testament. Uh, It would be a good thing if they devoted themselves to properly understanding the Old Testament. These Jewish myths were probably some sort of oral traditions, some myths that had grown up around the teaching of the Old Testament, and, and these false teachers were devoting themselves to those myths and also to the commandments of men. So don't think like the Ten Commandments. Uh, Think like uh, uh, laws and prescriptions added beyond the Scriptures that can thus be called the commandments of men. And these prescriptions, these, these laws of men, these commands of men were being imposed on the people as an additional standard for righteousness. There was a legalistic component to this heresy. And then Paul makes an interesting statement, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, why does he say that? It's not really evident on a surface-level reading. I think the idea, though, if we're tracking with the nature of this heresy, is that there was an aspect of, of this false teaching uh, that valued a sort of detachment from material things, uh, that, that valued ritual uh, cleanliness, a sort of ritual asceticism. Paul says, look, to the pure, to those who are truly pure, all things are pure. You don't have to abstain from meat and wearing certain clothes and observing certain days or whatever. Uh, But to those who are actually defiled, all things are impure. And he's saying these teachers are defiled. These teachers are impure. They think because uh, maybe they've not gotten married and maybe because they're not eating meat sacrificed to idols and they don't go in these certain places that they're clean. But Paul says, no, 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 no. To to those who are pure, all things are pure. Uh, To those who are defiled, all things are pure or impure. He says, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Their conduct was not in keeping with their profession to know God. And we considered last week that statement from the Apostle Paul that he was called as an apostle for the faith of God's elect and for their knowledge that accords or leads to godliness. He's going to ask these Cretan Christians to do better. He's going to teach them that true knowledge of God actually produces within the heart of a born-again, regenerate man or woman actual godliness, good conduct, good works that are profitable for people. But looking at these false teachers and the the knowledge that is on offer by these teachers, uh, he says, no, they, they deny that they know God by their works, by their conduct. And thus Paul says, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay, so what can we say about these false teachers and their false teaching? Let me try to distill this down to as simple a picture as possible. Four basic statements. Number one, these false teachers were taken up with a type of heresy that was predominantly Jewish in origin. Number two, the heresy itself was characterized by empty talk and speculation by an interest in Jewish myths and the legalistic commands of men, and by a sort of ritual asceticism. Number three, the false teachers themselves were apparently deceitful and manipulative. They used their influence for dishonest financial gain. The outcome of their teaching was disobedience and ungodliness, and apparently their pattern of life delegitimized their profession to know God. And then number four, uh, thus, in light of these three things, Paul renders them insubordinate defiled, detestable, and unfit for any 
good work. Ouch. And that's the false teaching, false teachers. What's Titus supposed to do with them? Well, we have a couple of indications in verses 10 to 16 what Titus is supposed to do with these false teachers. Number one, in verse 11, Paul says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul's directive to Titus is that he is supposed to bring an end to the false teaching. Uh, He's not to initiate an open forum for discussion. He's not to provide a setting in which there can be a sort of point-counterpoint dialogue with the false teachers. He's not to promote diversity of thought and tolerance on these issues. Paul's word to Titus is, they must be silenced. Like, out with the false teaching. Done with these guys. They must be silenced. Now, there are, within uh, uh, Orthodox Christian faith, certain issues upon which godly, legitimate, born-again Christians can disagree on. False teaching is not one of those things. There is to be a zero-tolerance policy toward false teaching in the church of the Lord Jesus. And, And I find this helpful, Paul says to Titus, you need to silence these false teachers, and he supplies a reason since or because they're upsetting whole families. I want to encourage you, the members of Emmanuel, and assure you that your elders are committed to being alert as to false teaching. And and you may wonder, well, how do we decide when to address false teaching? You know, there's all sorts of false teaching out there in the world. There's thousands of variants of heresy and things like that. How do we decide when, either in a sermon or a class or something like that, we're going to address false teaching. Uh, This isn't kind of the summation of the whole issue, but there's a helpful principle, I think, supplied here. The false teaching was upsetting whole families. It was infecting the church. And I think we're especially alert to those false ideas, those false forms of teaching that the people of God here at Emmanuel are especially susceptible to. That's some sort of principle, I think, we try to operate by. But back to the text. What's Titus to do? He has to silence the false teachers. Then we read in verse 13, that he's to rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So so Titus apparently is not just supposed to silence these guys and quietly show them the back door. He's to rebuke them sharply, probably publicly. And he's not just supposed to let them have it, rebuking them and then kicking them out. We read he's to rebuke them sharply in order that, or for this purpose, the few of you have a Greek text in front of you, hina is the word. This is the reason why Paul wants him to rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Basically, Paul's hope is that through Titus's rebuke, these same false teachers would cut it out. It would not just cut it out, it would appear Paul's hope is actually that these false teachers would be won by Titus and would repent of their false teaching and no longer commit themselves to the things that they were committing themselves to. Now, how on earth is Titus supposed to do that? How's he supposed to do that? Here's Titus, here are these insubordinate, deceitful, detestable false teachers. How on earth is Titus going to win them? We don't know that he actually did win them. Uh, In fact, Paul suggests in Titus 3, there comes a point where you've issued a rebuke a couple of times, then you dissociate 
with a divisive brother or sister. We don't know that he did, in fact, win them. But it's at this point I just want to highlight something that we actually learn in the next chapter in Titus chapter 2. So, listen, Titus was called to teach and preach what accords with sound doctrine. And I imagine, Titus 2 verse 15, Titus is told, let no one disregard you. I imagine that at some point, Titus was to flash the badge, and, and he was to show them his papers from the Apostle Paul, sort of, do you know on whose authority uh, I come? I've been sent by uh, Big Daddy Paul, and he's given me a mission to you. You need to listen to me. Surely, Titus had to do that. He had his teaching. He had his office. He had his badge. But see, Titus had more than just his arguments. He had more resources and more weapons than just his office. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 7, and Paul's directive to Titus. Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Didn't your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame? having nothing evil to say about us. My simple point is this, Titus had more than his words. He had more than his authority. He had his conduct. And I think it was Titus's conduct that was the secret to his winsomeness. You'll remember last time, those who were here, we saw the very sensitive mission Titus was on to the Corinthians and what great success he had in that very difficult context, and now he's in another difficult context, and Paul's hoping he's going to be winsome again in this context. Just a brief point of application. This isn't Paul's main point here, but just application for us. Listen, none of us will ever find ourselves uh, in precisely Titus's situation. Uh, there are all kinds of factors that make Titus's assignment obviously unique, but we all find ourselves in contexts where we have to issue a rebuke. Uh, where we have to refute falsehoods or error, uh, where we'll have to engage opponents in some form or fashion. I'm not just talking about pastors in the room. Every Christian is going to have to do this kind of work in some form or fashion, be it small or great. I think we can really learn something from Titus here. You want to win people to your perspectives. Here's the Titus prescription. Show yourself to be an example in good works. Win people, not only by your words, I mean, try to win them by your words, but win them also with your conduct. In your teaching, or I'll just say, in the way you share your perspectives, show integrity, uh, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. H how much more success we would have if in all our arguments and all of our efforts to persuade people, we committed that our speech was going to be sound not just in the content of the words, but the manner in which we convey what we have to say to people, and live and speak in such a way that an opponent may have nothing evil to say about you. Uh, brother, sister, you have more than just your words. You have more than just your rank or your office or your status. You have your conduct and your good example. You have your life as an argument, and it is so often that it will be your life your conduct, that will win people to your perspectives. Paul at least hoped it would be that way in Titus' experience. And I'll just say we have a number of brothers here who are
pastors and a handful of men who are aspiring to pastoral ministry, we need to remember this word as well. You're not just going to win people with your arguments. God being our helper, we can also win people with our sound conduct. Paul said a similar thing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 says, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but what? Well, tell them that you have credentials from Paul. No, he doesn't say that. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the brothers an example in conduct, in speech, in love, in faith, and in purity. Well, let's move now from our consideration of the false teachers and what Titus was to do with them. Let's look now at biblical elders presented to us in verses 5 through 9. So here you are, Titus. Uh, You have immature and unstable churches that have been infiltrated by false teachers. What are you going to do? Well, he can't avoid confrontation with the false teachers. He's got to silence them. He's got to rebuke them sharply, and he is to at least at times assert his authority so as not to be disregarded, and he is to try to win them with his conduct. That's the defense. What's the offense? Verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Crete was made up of dozens of towns. I think we're to imagine that there were various house churches scattered in these towns, and Titus was to go and plant churches in those towns. By the way, I don't think we're to deduce anything about church polity from Titus 1 verse 5, as if Titus was some archbishop or something like that. Paul's not exactly talking about that right here. Uh, Titus is a unique man, an apostolic delegate, and these are unique circumstances. So here you are, Titus, and here are the immature and unstable churches. You have to appoint elders. What would you be looking for in leaders for these churches? Consider the state of these churches. Immaturity and instability, they've already been infected by false teaching. They're in a surrounding culture that is hostile and immoral. What kind of men do these churches need? They need the kind of men that every church needs. Paul is going to list qualifications for the sort of men Titus was to appoint. He gives a similar list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But I want you to appreciate what Paul doesn't say to Titus. Uh, He doesn't say, Titus, find the most dynamic and charismatic personalities in the region and sign them up. He doesn't say, uh, find men with business acumen who have learned the art of winning friends and influencing people. Now listen, pastors very well may be dynamic, they very well may be charismatic, they may have business backgrounds, they may be effective in various leadership tools, but that's not where Paul goes here. He emphasizes qualifications that center on the man's character. Peggy Noonan She's a speechwriter for President uh, Ronald Reagan. You kids know this about presidents. They don't really write their speeches, okay? They have a speechwriter. Maybe you could be a speechwriter for a president or a politician one day. And a speechwriter writes the draft of the speech, gives it to the president, he sort of reviews it, and then he gives the speech. Uh, Peggy Noonan, this lady, did that for Ronald Reagan, a president, kids, that maybe you should study one day. And uh, Peggy Noonan, I think it was after President Reagan had uh, passed away, wrote a tribute to President Reagan or a memoir or something like that, and she titled it, When Character Was King. When Character Was King. 
Listen, when you think about these qualifications, think about the Reagan principle. If you don't like Reagan, then, but just remember that, when character was king. Because when it comes to pastors, character is king. Character is king. Well, he's a bright and shining star in the denomination. He's really got a bright future. Is he hospitable? He's got a PhD from Oxford University. Is he patient? Oh man, he's so dynamic. I mean, he could keep the attention of the oldest person in the room, the youngest person in the room. He's got great props, he's got great jokes, great illustrations. Is he a lover of good? We ought to align our priorities with the priorities of God's word. I am very fearful, and I know some of you have expressed this as well, that we are so overrun in Western evangelicalism by worldly ways of thinking. We value all the wrong things in our leaders. Let's reorient our minds and our hearts to the priorities that Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, lays out for us here. I want to survey these qualifications in verses 6 through 9. Let me just mention a few preliminary things. First of all, these are virtues that Paul's going to list that the surrounding culture generally would have recognized as virtuous. So if you look at lists of virtues, even in philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, there'd be a lot of overlap, actually, even though those men were not believers uh, these are virtues that the culture would have appreciated. More than that, it's a very ordinary list of virtues. Uh, these, these elders were supposed to be examples to the flock in these virtues. Every Christian was to aspire to these virtues, and elders were to lead them in those virtues. A second preliminary comment, we should view these as minimal qualifications. What I mean by that is it's legitimate to ask for more in an elder candidate simply than the virtues and qualifications listed here in Titus chapter 1. There's all sorts of things, actually, we might want in an elder candidate that aren't listed here in this passage. Third comment, all of the qualifications uh, are to be met. That is to say, we can't cherry pick. Well, he's really good at being hospitable. I know he's not the most gentle guy. He really has a hot temper, uh, but, but he's great at these things over here. I think Paul would say all of these qualifications ought to be met. Fourth and final comment before we look at these qualifications. Uh, we should not expect, though, uh, that men who are qualified for ministry be perfect in these areas. Uh, so, uh, I'll just pick on Ben Allen, one of our pastors here. We assessed him a couple of years ago along with Lai Chow, and the two brothers became elders in our church. Uh, we discerned uh, that Ben was not a quick-tempered man, right? Now, Andrea, does that mean your husband has never in 15 years of marriage, lost his temper? Probably not. But in general, it can be said of Pastor Ben and Pastor Lai Chow and hopefully of myself, we're not quick-tempered men. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we're sinless. In fact, elders are sinners. You must know that. Um, in fact, um, I'll just confess to my fellow elders and to you, I've already sinned three times this year. Um, so, <laughs> it happens. Elders even have besetting sins, uh, sins they struggle with all their lives, and they need the body of Christ and the means of grace just like anyone else. 
Many commentators have observed that the qualifications break down into three general categories, domestic qualifications, character qualifications, and personal gifting. So that's kind of how we'll frame our consideration of these qualifications. First, we have domestic qualifications. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. First of all, he's the husband of one wife. Some people think that that particular qualification was supplied because polygamy was so rampant in that context, uh, men having several uh, uh, wives, and so we need to supply this qualification. I don't think that's probably accurate. I think increasingly we realize polygamy was not as common in those days. Uh, Others have speculated that Paul particularly wanted in the Cretan context these men to be married men because you had false teachers who were aesthetics, as it were, and believe there was something holy about abstaining from the marriage state, and maybe that is uh, uh, one of the reasons why Paul supplies this qualification. Uh, Others believe that Paul is here requiring strictly that the elder candidates be married men, and of course, if they're married, they must be faithful. Uh, My personal opinion, personal opinion being the operative words, you can disagree with this, is that it would go beyond the text Uh, That it it would be too exegetically restrictive to say that Paul is strictly requiring marriage in the case of every pastoral candidate. So I don't believe that singleness in a pastor is strictly forbidden or censured by this uh, passage. Having said that, uh, let me say that though I don't think Paul is requiring pastors to be married, I think he expects pastors to be married. You see the distinction? Not required but expected. Like, like this is the norm. These men are going to be married. And yeah, sure, there might be a corner case where we let a single guy in, but ordinarily the expectation is that these men would be uh, married. Uh, So his assumption and my assumption is that at least the vast majority, if not all, of qualified elder candidates will be married, and thus the candidate is to be the husband of one wife. That is, he is to be faithful to his wife. Uh, that is sexually faithful. He's a one-woman man. He is devoted to her and her alone. He would not have been like so many men in that Cretan society or like Zeus himself, the god of the Cretans, who was venerated in part for his ability to deceive human women and lie with them. He wasn't like the Cretans of that society, wasn't like Zeus who slept around or kept a mistress or visited prostitutes. He was a one-woman man faithful to his wife. The ESV then says that his children uh, are believers. I think that translation obscures the meaning of this verse. The word can legitimately be translated, and I think should be translated, that his children are faithful. The word translated believers can also be translated faithful. I don't think Paul is requiring that the pastor's children be born-again Christians, or that somehow uh, 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 the, 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 the pastoral candidate can generate saving faith in the heart of his children, rather they're to be faithful, and I think that accords with uh, the next uh, statement in the text, that they're not to be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, So these kids in uh, the elder candidate's home are to be uh, faithful to their dad, to be generally obedient and submissive. They're not to be perfect, they're not to be debauched, not to be perfect but they're not to be insubordinate or debauched. So Paul is basically saying to Titus that the domestic sphere, the home, is to be a proving ground for the elder. Uh, This idea is actually 
uh, more explicit in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. There Paul says to Timothy that the elder candidate must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, the home is a, like a mini parish. It's like a mini flock, a proving ground. And he must prove himself faithful in leading his family if he is to take stewardship over the household of God. As Titus, or Paul says to Titus here, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the pastor is to be faithful to his wife. He has loved her well. And he's able to keep his children in good order and they honor and respect him. Those are the domestic qualifications. Then we move now to the character qualifications in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward, it must be above reproach. That doesn't mean that the man has never sinned, that no one could say, I've actually witnessed this brother sin at one time or another. The meaning of this word, which could be translated blameless or above reproach, essentially means that there is no legitimate or outstanding charge or accusation against him. It doesn't mean that no time in his background there was a legitimate outstanding charge against him. Uh, but there's no, uh, it's not like uh, there are charges against him that he committed armed robbery the other day, you know. There aren't outstanding accusations of crime or impropriety or evil against the man. And then Paul says he must not be uh, five things. He must not be arrogant. Uh, that's not just that he thinks really well of himself. Uh, he's not to be self-willed, stubborn. Uh, indifferent to the feelings of other people. He's not to be quick-tempered, that is, inclined to anger, set off easily. There are few traits more destructive in an elder, a man who has authority, than to be quick-tempered and heavy-handed. He's not to be quick-tempered. He's not to be a drunkard, that is, he's not to be addicted to wine or literally to be drunk. Now, this phrase wouldn't restrict the moderate consumption of alcohol, but it would strictly center the abuse of alcohol. The former can be tolerated, the latter never. He's not to be violent. Now, our minds may immediately go to, like, verbal abuse or something like that. Um, I'm guessing in a room like this, most men here have not struck a woman before. Uh, Titus would have no such confidence addressing those men in that climate. Uh, violence would have been uh, more prominent in that society. Uh, so certainly physical violence is entailed. He can't be a man who's given to physical violence. But it is also true that he, he shouldn't bully people. He shouldn't be pugnacious, always looking for a fight and seeking to intimidate and bring his power to bear and to domineer over others. And he's not to be greedy for gain. And, and the idea is typically like through dishonest means. He's not to deceive people to get money. He's not fond of dishonest gain. But then we read, those are the negative things, then we read he must be, and then Paul lists six positive things related to character and conduct. He must be uh, hospitable. That word means pretty much exactly what you think it means. It's not just having people over for dinner, though that's a great way to show hospitality. It is the regular and deliberate and generous use of your resources to provide care and help to others, and elders are to be such men. I love the next phrase, he's to be a lover of good. 
Wouldn't that be wonderful if each child could say that about their pastor? My pastor is a lover of good. He's to be self-controlled. That is, he possesses himself. He's composed. This would be probably the positive side of not being quick-tempered or a drunkard. He's not ruled by his passions or by his emotions. He's self-controlled. He is upright. That means he generally lives a righteous life. He, he has learned Psalm 1. Uh, he walks in the way of the righteous. He's an upright man. He's holy. He's pure or devout or pious. He's disciplined, very near synonym to self-controlled, the idea of self-mastery. Uh, he's not a sloppy worker. He's not sloppy with his speech. He's, he's a disciplined man. Third and final area of qualification, we have personal gifting. Domestic qualifications, character qualifications, then personal gifting. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He must hold firm, as in he comprehends the Bible. It's not just that he comprehends the Bible, though. He has convictions about the Bible. He knows the raw data. He understands the Scriptures. He knows how the Bible is put together. He comprehends the Bible, and he believes the Bible to be the Word of God. He holds fast to it. And it's resolved to preach the truth as it is found in uh, the Scriptures. But it's more than just comprehending the Bible, holding fast to the trustworthy Word as taught. He's supposed to do those things so that he may be able positively to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, he doesn't just comprehend the Bible, he must comprehend the Bible, but he also has to have the ability to convey it uh, with force and effect and edification for the dual purposes of instruction and rebuke. It says he's to be able, the word there is dunatos. It's from that Greek word dunatos that we get our word dynamite. Kids, what does dynamite do? It's powerful, right? Explodes and is capable of great power. This elder is to have power or ability to convey fruitfully the content of the Scriptures. Now, without going against everything I said a moment ago about character being king among pastors, I actually think this is the thing that is most lacking in ministers today. A God-given ability, an anointing from God to convey the truth of His Word in ways that actually build up the people of God in the most holy faith. And we should pray. There's no seminary program that creates this sort of thing in men. We should pray to Christ, who is pleased to give gifts to His church, that He would forever supply our church and so many churches throughout the world with men who have this God-given ability to convey the Scriptures, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He's to be able to have the power, the ability, the gifting to convey the truth of God's Word. And it is power to, first of all, instruct. The word for instruct, interestingly enough, is parakalene. Uh, it's a similar word. It's from the same word group that we get the word paraclete, which is how John, uh, or Jesus, I guess, describes the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to 
comfort and to counsel and to instruct, similar word is used to describe the work of the pastor. I don't have time to explain all the ways in which the pastor's ministry might be parallel to some aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. You men here who are pastors and who aspire to be pastors, we would do well to think a lot about this. What is it that Paul is trying to convey here? In some sense, we come alongside God's people to comfort, to counsel, to instruct, to advocate for, in a way not entirely unlike the ministry of the Spirit. He's to instruct God's people, and he's also equipped to rebuke either those in the church that need to be rebuked or false teachers like those who are in Crete. And again, I'll just apply this primarily to pastors and those aspiring to ministry. If um, your attitude toward conflict is, let's, let's, let's rather we not, uh, the ministry's not for you. Elders have to be the watchdogs. They have to protect the flock from false teaching. And times will come where pastors are required to speak out against false teaching and to rebuke those who are in error and may God make us faithful to that work. I need to conclude this message. And so let me conclude with just a simple word of application. Here is Paul. And here are the churches in Crete, immature, unstable, already infected by false teachers who are upsetting whole families. And Paul can send his man, Titus. What does Paul send Titus to do? He's to appoint elders is to refute false teachers. This is Paul's prescription for at least two reasons, and they are reasons that I think are perennially relevant to churches today. Number one, Paul understands that one of the greatest threats to the church in every age is false teaching. He understands, and we should understand, that one of the greatest threats to the church is false teaching. Do you think that you're immune to false teaching? I'm in a healthy church, I do my devotions, I read good books. It's not really something I have to worry about. We looked at this in our series on the book of Ephesians. That church was planted in the most marvelous of ways. It wasn't but about seven years later that Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, and already false teaching had infected the church. It wasn't but two generations later that Paul, excuse me, uh, Jesus, through the apostle John, was threatening to remove the candlestick from the church at Ephesus. By God's grace, we have had a wonderful start, but that's no guarantee of a hopeful future. <laughs> and so we need to be wary against false teaching. We need to be wary against uh, divisive and deceitful doctrines that can afflict the church. A second thing Paul understands is that one of the greatest gifts under heaven is faithful elders who are faithful under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, who carry on their duty and responsibility as those who will in fact give an account to God for the souls of those under their care. And so I'll conclude with this. There will never be a time in our church's life in which false teaching will not be a threat, and there will never be a time in our church's life in which we will not need faithful elders as gifts from Christ. We should labor for, and we should always pray for this as a church. Lord, protect us from false teachers. We want the truth as it is in Jesus. 
We want teaching that accords with sound doctrine. We want to be built up in the faith. We don't want just milk. We want the meat. And we want to grow in godliness according to the Word of God. And Lord, please also, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, give us faithful elders, faithful pastors who are not saviors for us. At best, they're stewards in the household of God. At best, they're mere reflections of the chief shepherd. Don't look to your pastor to be your savior. Only Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. But insofar as you have faithful pastors, they will point you to the Lord Jesus Christ who saves sinners and who makes them new, provides them with grace to grow in holiness and godliness and for every good work. Only Jesus can do that. The most faithful pastors will point us to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we apply your word and this sermon on your word right now. We pray that you would be pleased throughout the years and the generations of this church's existence. That you would protect us always from wolves, from false teachers, for those who would come in to divide and to deceive. That you would be pleased to so root this church in the faith once for all delivered to the saints you would be so pleased to keep the members of this church committed to the faith, the sound doctrine, that this church would never stray from the truth of your word. We pray that one of the means you would use to bring that about throughout the generations of this church's existence is to always supply this body of believers with faithful elders. Lord, you told your disciples 2,000 years ago that the harvest is indeed plentiful, but the laborers are few. We respond to that encouragement you gave to those men. We pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Raise up in this place and in every true church faithful men who can shepherd your people until Jesus Christ comes back and we see our chief shepherd and we experience fullness of joy in his presence. We pray that you would make the elders of this church to be faithful in the charge that you have given to them and that you would build up this body of believers in the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.